What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. I'd like to thank my sponsors, Round the X and Voyager, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear much more about them later on in the episode. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today's guest is a man of many talents who has chosen to bring his myriad skills to the world of crypto. He's the ex-Wall Street trading, globetrotting, competitive golfing, hockey playing founder and CEO of Hero Exchange. That's Hero with an X, by the way. I'm thrilled to welcome Dan Gunsberg, a.k.a. Gunny, to the show. How are you feeling today, Dan? Feeling great, Scott. Could not be more excited to be here with you today. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us and, and share some stories. Of course. So uh, I know that you're a competitive golfer, and this is a debate that I've had many times. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, do you consider golf a sport or is it just a really fun drinking game? <laughs> I think it depends on the context. I would say that um, you know, prior to a couple of years ago, I treated it much more as a sport. But um, it's become much more of an enjoyable uh, drinking game for me now. Yeah, but even outside of your own experience, like in the context of sports, do you believe that it's a sport if a terribly um, out of shape human being can play it uh, as a professional? <laughs> I think um, I think the kind of the um, the benchmark for athletic ability in uh, in professional golf has definitely changed, but. Um, yeah. There's no doubt that its roots were deeply embedded in cigarette smoking, alcohol drinking, debauchery. Yeah, so, I like to think about John Daly as my perfect example of why it's more like uh, bowling than than it is like uh, football or basketball. <laughs> but either way, I know that you've played uh, hockey your whole life, so nobody can question your athleticism on this one. Oh, thank you, appreciate that. So uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about your path to becoming a crypto entrepreneur. Uh, can you tell us a bit how about how you got here? Yeah, sure. So um, my background has been in derivatives trading. I, uh, I started working on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade when I was uh, 18 years old um, during my summers home from college. And eventually, uh, when I finished school, I started trading full time. And that ultimately led me off the trading floor um, to uh, trading electronically. And um, I really started trading in uh, yield curve products. So I was trading a lot of spread relationships between like uh, two-year, five-year, 10-year, 30-year treasury bonds. And, uh, and then during the, um, the internet boom, I moved to start trading uh, equities. And uh, I did that until 2002 and then went back to trading short-term interest rates again, um, which ultimately led me to a proprietary trading firm in Chicago that uh, was founded by two good friends of mine and um, I came in there in 2011, and uh, we we really scaled uh, scaled that company up um, really successfully. And in 2015, um, actually in 2013, I, I hired a a trader in New York that had told me about cryptocurrency, and um, I came back to Chicago where our headquarters was, and I talked with a guy in my uh, uh, in my firm who uh, 
turns out was actually um, spending his weekends arbitraging um, uh, Bitcoin on uh, various exchanges and just kind of doing it quietly and uh, was very successful at it. And um, he ended up, um, I ended up spending a few days with him uh, and he was literally like going in deep, whiteboarding everything about, um, you know, about crypto to me and uh, obviously sent me down a very deep wormhole. And I started looking at the market and it actually ended up being right around the time that Mt. Gox happened. And um, obviously the market went through a, uh, you know, a, a pretty deep crypto winter and um, I didn't end up doing anything in it and um, more or less kind of forgot about it, just would occasionally look at it and um, but just kind of went on with, um, you know, with staying active in legacy markets. And then in um, around like uh, June, July of 2015, I started to look at the market again and noticed it was kind of forming some type of a bottom potentially. And um, I kind of looked at it and said, well, you know, you have some good, uh, good optionality here because if I make a small investment into it and then start um, trading around my position, then uh, worst that happens, it uh, goes to zero. And I, you know, I, I've lost what amounted to be a small investment. And uh, so I ended up uh, buying my first uh, few Bitcoins in um, late 2015 and uh, then started to uh, trade in some other uh, other coins and the rest was history. By 2017, I, um, I ended up leaving the firm that I was at and uh, going into crypto full time. That was in uh, late 2017. And then in 2018, um, I hooked up with, uh, with my partner, Rob Levy, who um, his background was in derivatives trading as well. He came from um, the options market making world. And uh, we started trading crypto together. And while we were sitting there trading, we, we, um, we came up with this idea. And this really came out of kind of looking at like, looking at, um, you know, what was going on with BitMEX. And we were watching these like massive liquidations go off on a daily basis. And just for sitting there kind of chuckling, thinking like, oh, my God, like the, the retail kind of trading world is just getting rinsed left and right on this. And um, we said, you know, we started to think about like, what if we could create something that um, not necessarily, you know, I, you know, not, not, not necessarily was the same thing as like a perp swap, but, but was something way easier to understand, simple to engage um, a way for, you know, for traders to take a look at the market and, um, and take a view on the market in various timeframes that didn't really have all of the the makings of like a, a legacy double auction market, which is what everybody's kind of used to trading. And, um, you know, we came up with this concept, which ultimately became the, the core product of, Her of Hero, which is a, a paramutual digital derivative. And, and what, what we mean by that is um, the, the product itself is... Uh, really boils down to a simple question of, you know, over a certain fixed time frame, will the price of the underlier, so in this case, Bitcoin, be higher or lower? Um, and just using like a candle as reference point, um, the will it be higher or lower from close to close? So close of the previous candle to the close of the next candle, 
in various timeframes, will it be higher or lower? And we essentially created a product that distilled it down to that level of decision-making um, and ended up building that product over 2018, launched it in 2019, and and the rest is history. So you basically dumbed down trading for retail to make it more of a binary decision, a bet on whether things were going to be higher or lower, you know, a day later, four hours later, a week later, or whatever time frame you were on. Yeah, it's just, you know, just a simplified way to interact with the market, um, you know, an alternative way to express a view, to hedge risk, to trade. And the one thing that we did differently, you know, we, we kind of looked at what was going on in the binary option market. And, you know, Rob and I also knew binary options in a different way, you know, as a, as a true exotic option that, um, you know, is traded often and heavily in the, in the, in the bank world and in the, in the proprietary derivatives world as well. Um, although it's generally done OTC, but, you know, that the binary option world market was moved into, you know, there's companies went out and, and basically um, promoted it to retail audiences. And it ended up being very toxic because, you know, they were doing things like the, the, the same company that was um, offering the, the binary option product was also the market maker. And they were also controlling the pricing index. So they created their own index. It wasn't independent. So we kind of took those elements, removed them from the equation. Um, so all of our pricing is 100% transparent and independent from us. We don't control any of the index or any of the pricing. The, um, the platform is peer-to-peer. Is -peer, so um, there is no, uh, you know, quote-unquote market maker in there that you're, that you're trading against. And then um, we also applied what's called a paramutual payoff function. And what that means is that the um, in our markets, when you take a position, uh, whether it's you know whether you think the market's going to be higher or lower, um, you're essentially purchasing the position. So like paying a premium, um, and that premium is whatever size position you want to take on. It's um, it's it's actually infinite in the in the size that you can take on. So you take that position, all the positions. All the higher positions, lower positions, in our case, that's, uh, you know, moon and rect, um, are pooled together in the contract. And let's say the contract is a, it's a one-hour uh, Bitcoin um, contract. And so all of the positions are pooled together. And then at expiration, if it's higher, then everybody that had a position on moon would split the entirety of the pool pro rata based on your position size. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And uh, it's funny you touched on obviously calling it moon and rec. So you've sort of capitalized on the memes of the, the space to make it more accessible again. I mean, I have to say every time I check the site, I feel like I'm at a rave or like on an amazing acid trip of some sort. <laughs> so I'm assuming that that was a, I'm assuming that that was deliberate, that you actually made the site that way. And you've sort of I mean, the feeling to me when I when I when I'm on there is that you've somewhat gamified trading. You've sort of merged the worlds of gaming and and, and crypto trading, which is interesting because obviously there's a major crossroads between those two worlds. I think in the people who choose to interact in this market as well. Was that the intention? Yeah, that was the intent. And you know, when when we first created Moonrect, we look we didn't we knew it was some form of trading. Um, we also understood that there was like um, you know a, a game a game a game element to it, and so 
um, we really weren't sure where it fell. So, you know, our thought was, look, we're, we're really kind of intersecting these two verticals, one being uh, trading digital assets and one being, um, you know, taking elements from, from games, from games and essentially putting out what become, what becomes a form of a financial market game. And when you think about, you know, when you really think about, um, trading, like in the banking world or the institutional world, um, and they're doing things like exotic options, it really is a, a game that, that two traders are constructing to, um, decide the outcome of an event. And so, we, you know, we kind of took that and and turned it into something that was more approachable. Um, our thinking was that it could be a, a good, useful on-ramp for a much wider audience if it's approached with game layers over it and not just cut and dry, a cut and dry exchange. Um, you know, we kind of like to say it's like softening some of the sharp corners that, uh, you know, that you may engage when you come to a... a a, a more vanilla uh, exchange platform, and um, and we put it out to the market, and a lot of the elements in terms of the design um, were yes to you know to bring some game elements and make it feel a little more approachable and easier to understand. And uh, we launched the product in 2019 in January 2019. Had some uh, really good uh, platform feedback and and got market validation. And have been growing it ever since. Uh, that's that's awesome. Um, so you touched on obviously the timing. Uh, I think a lot of things. There was this boom in 2017 in crypto, and then a lot of people started building things only to sort of uh, find themselves in 2018 during what some would describe as another crypto winter, trying to build things. What was it like starting a company in this space in 2018? Yeah, it definitely was challenging. I mean, you know when. You know, we initially um, we thought about doing an ICO and ended up thinking that it was better and actually somewhat unique to um, to kind of take the path of building a, a product first. And uh, you know, the the market for ICOs was really starting to die out at the time. Um, we obviously do have a token on the platform, um, but uh, you know, we we focused our efforts really on. Um, on the fundraising front, you know, we we sold equity, and uh, and then um, on the uh, on the platform development front, we really just focused on building the best platform that we could, and and didn't really, um, you know, kind of take the path that a lot of people uh, in 2017 were, you know, did or were able to. And so um, I think now that's you know it really benefited us now because it it put us in a position to to really grow long-term because, you know, the fact that we did get through kind of the, the early stages of our MVP and work out a lot of the, the kinks that needed to be worked out in the platform um, is really setting us on a trajectory for growth, um, you know, now and looking forward. Obviously, there are a lot of pundits and certainly people from the outside world claim that crypto was going to zero, Bitcoin was worthless. Did you ever have your doubts that you were building something in a effectively dead market? You know, absolutely not. I, you know, my partner and I kind of took this idea on just from trading and just understanding the nature of, of volatility and kind of the nature of of Bitcoin itself. And, you know, a, a peak to valley um, move of, of 80, 90 percent in, in anything in crypto and especially, you know, in just in general tech startup world um, 
it's normal. And so we, we really took it as an opportunity to provide something to, you know, to the crypto space when the, the space was, was kind of reeling and, and in a place of, of kind of, um, you know, the majority of the, of, of the, uh, of the people in the space were kind of somewhat in despair. And, you know, we, we felt that our platform and, and kind of the approach we're taking was giving them kind of a refreshed look at the market. And, um, you know, it, it, we really kind of never had a doubt in our mind that um, over time that, you know, Bitcoin and just crypto would, would kind of get its legs back under it and, and push forward. It's just kind of part of the cycle that, um, that we're all, you know, deeply entrenched in. I mean, do you think that that's a result of all of your experience trading that you were sort of able to remove the emotion and not go that route of uh, extreme fear and, uh, you know, selling off and thinking the market was dead? Because I, I personally believe that, you know, emotion is the biggest impediment to trading. So I'm assuming that your experience, especially in something like the internet boom and bust may have lined you up to uh, not react to something like that in this space. Yeah, a- absolutely. It, it helped a ton and and let, you know, every trader that's been around long enough has gone through his, um, his ups and his downs. And, um, you know, you, you kind of need to cut the tails out and focus on, focus on the emotions that are in the middle. And, um, you know, we, it, it really helped, especially, you know, I, I would really say that it, it helped, um, going through things like, uh, like the internet boom bust and kind of seeing what was happening in, in the tech cycles then, um, it, it's not that it numbed me to it. Like we're, you all, you always get, you always have that uncertainty in the back of your head. And I, I think good trading is kind of, um, on one hand, you have to be super confident, but then on the other hand, you, you always want to be cautious. And so, um, you, you know, I'd be lying if I said that there weren't moments where we were kind of having, oh shit moments. And, you know, especially because the, the environment for um, raising capital at the time um, definitely had changed. And so, you know, I think we, you know, we had ultimately ended up making a good play with the timing of, of launching the platform when we did and, you know, kind of coming out of um, this bear market has really helped, um, you know, we brought on some amazing investment, strategic investment partners and, um, you know, kind of holding strong in our position Um in a cautious but confident way has been has served as well. And you touched on uh, some of the other exchanges that you were watching at the time that you decided to create Hero, uh, specifically on BitMEX and watching the absolute mass rinsing of retail traders over and over again, getting destroyed using 100x leverage. Uh, what are your thoughts on unregulated exchanges in this space, some that have suboptimal ordering options, no OCOs, no trailing stops, things like that? Uh, the structure of the BitMEX liquidation fund. And I think, you know, retail doesn't understand that even just getting liquidated versus putting your stop a dollar above it can save you 30, 40% on your position. I mean, how do you feel that these exchanges are helping or hurting the space and, and what needs to be improved? So I, I think that they're ultimately helping the space. Um, I think that it's incredibly early. Like we're still so early in crypto just as a whole whether it's derivatives exchanges or, um, you know, other projects that are, are building out um, technologies that um, will be meaningful at some point in the future. And I think what they are doing is, is setting groundwork for changing how the world really interacts with, with um, ultimately with financial markets. 
And, you know, I, I don't want to comment on, you know, we, we take what we think is a more conservative approach on the regulatory front. Um, we are pursuing licensing in, you know, we, we, we do completely prohibit and geofence out um, U.S. from accessing the platform and uh, in other restricted jurisdictions. But, you know, I ultimately think there's going to be a, a happy medium. Like th there's no doubt that um, platforms like BitMEX and, you know, Ar Arthur was incredibly smart for the way that he, he ultimately set it up. And um, he's operating in a very nascent and gray area at the time that nobody could understand and um, was able to really capitalize on it. And I don't, I, I definitely think there's going to be a um, an intersection of regulation, global you know global harmonization around regulation, and um, the need for uh, platforms um, that are interacting you know that are uh, exchanges um, needing to do some level of um, regulation. And at the end of the day, a, a regulator's job is really to protect the, you know, the common person from, from being defrauded or just unfair practices. And we're often from themselves. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and often from themselves. Correct. Um, and so I, I think that there's going to be some happy medium. It, as far as things like the insurance fund, look, you know, I operated in a legacy derivatives environment and I've seen practices from, you know, from futures clearing merchants that were, you know, were disgusting. I've seen, I've seen owners of, of FCMs, um, you know, tell their risk managers to let a trader continue to go and then have him sign his house over as collateral. Right. So I, you know, on one hand, I understand that the exchange needs to protect itself. I don't, I think the insurance fund, I prefer it, um, relative to socialized, um, losses. And, uh, I think that it was a. I think it's a. It's a pretty genius in, innovation, to be honest. And if you're going to really have a platform where you're not, where you're going to have quick access um, to a product like a perp swap uh, or other products that are available on platforms like Bitmex, um, you're going to need to have some level of the exchange is going to need to have some level of cushion to make sure that it can comfortably support the volume that's and the the risk that's being taken. Otherwise they're risking, you know, going out of business essentially, um, on one, on, on one road position. And so I don't think that, um, I think that the innovation in the technology is definitely innovative. Uh, will it be the end all be all? I don't know. I, I'm sure there's going to be more innovation around it in the future and it'll probably end up being something that will be manageable, but also will allow a much wider audience to more easily access you know, things like perp swaps on BitMEX and on other exchanges. And, um, you know, we, we have a unique proposition in that we don't really require things like an insurance fund um, just because of the nature of our platform. And we don't use leverage and all of the, you know, the contracts are pooled. So when there are, you know, you, you know exactly what's available uh, in each contract um, in terms of what, a, you know, what a position can, can gain or lose. And so um, we don't really confront those same issues, but ultimately, I think things like that are are important innovations to 
the you know the overall growth of of the derivative space in crypto. You talked about not being available in the United States. I think that a lot of the listeners probably hear constantly that um, they you know being locked out of ICOs, not being able to trade on exchanges. Um, at the most simple level, maybe you're a good person to explain to them why is your product not available in the United States? Why are similar products not available here? To put it simply, the the, the regulatory risks um, around the United States are are too great for for you know for us and for most other crypto platforms. And um, it, I don't think it's a function that um, we will never be able to operate here, but it is uh, considerably cost prohibitive for a platform like ours right now um, to to engage a, a U.S. based um, user base and. Uh, you know, there, there's just too many questions around, um, you know, where regulators are going to land, whether it's the CFTC or the SEC. Um, there are some, but, you know, we're taking an approach that what the what they have offered in terms of prescriptive rules um, are enough to keep us uh, out of the U.S. for now it, 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 in the format that we deliver our current products in. So it's not even something that you think most exchanges are are even uh, pursuing at this time because the barriers to entry or to the expenses associated with attempting it would just be too great. I think too great. The regulatory burden is is too great. Um, it you know, and it, it would dilute a lot of the innovation that I think a lot of um, platforms are working on right now. But um, you know, look at our hope, and we're we, you know, my partner and I spend a ton of time with our lawyers, a ton. And uh, and they have their ear to the ground on everything happening um, across the regulatory landscape. And there's no doubt that, um, you know, something will come out, uh, I would guess, within the next 12 to 18 months that would be more prescriptive. Um, But, you know, even though we we stay out of the out of the U.S., we you know, in other there's other jurisdictions that are restricted as well. Um, you know, we do take a, a a pretty sound approach in in terms of our KYC and just other elements that um, that we know are just more global risks. That um, you know, to deliver ultimately deliver a, a good platform. Uh, you know, when we we have a we want to take a, a long ball approach to what we're doing. We have you know we have plans for for growth over over coming years and um, and doing that like. You know, I think it would be foolish to to completely um, disregard uh, any regulatory, um, you know, any concept of, of what might be now or in the future in terms of regulation. And uh, that's, you know, it's kind of the approach that we're taking. Roundlyx.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is they take all your small purchases and they round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that money into any of 25 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can round up into different assets all at the same time. And they do this all without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. You'll never even notice that the money has gone from your account and you'll look up one day and hopefully you'll have made thousands and thousands of dollars on crypto. Go to roundlyx.com and use the promo code WOLF for $4 of free Bitcoin after making your first roundup or purchase. That's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com and code WOLF for $4 of free Bitcoin. 
Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. So having worked in the proprietary trading space forever, can you maybe offer some insight about how bigger firms trade and what they're focusing on. I think that obviously uh, most people in crypto are relatively new retail traders and don't have any sort of fundamental understanding of what it's like at a big shop and uh, you know what the goals are there and that they're not just looking at charts and picking up and down and hoping for the best like most retail traders. So can you talk about that a bit? No, I think one thing when I, you know, when I got into crypto, one thing that I really noticed um, collectively and, and this maybe is becoming from you know just really following crypto twitter and just kind of some of the other social media outlets is that so many people focus on price on you know up down and and, and the price of of bitcoin or you know shit coins or whatever else they're trading and <clears throat> what you you know what you find is that when you really go into a kind of a proprietary trading setting they end up doing more you know, at least in my experience, I've seen much more along the lines of like relationship trading or um, exchange arbitrage, uh, or even the you know the the proprietary firms that are doing um, more market making. Part of their P and L is really driven by the volume that they're trading on these platforms. You know, on on the different exchanges, and that volume obviously is a key metric for um for revenue of of any exchange platform and so providing deep liquidity for proper risk transfer is a requirement on any exchange so um you know what what i've really seen is that while a lot of the trade has come you know it is really done through kind of more relative value type of trading more spreading, um, meaning like you're trading asset A against asset B, um, or um, arbitraging different derivatives against each other. There's also this element of um, can I borrow on certain positions that I have at very cheap rates, or can I um, negotiate a deal based on my volume with various exchanges that will lower my net um, trading costs to a point where I can make tighter spreads and um, and capture more of the bid-ask edge. And in doing that, um, a lot of firms will try to build their businesses around that as kind of their residual income. And then when there are distortions in the market or there's significant opportunities, they'll allocate a certain amount of those assets to those, you know, kind of to those uh, more Delta One positions uh, and and then from there, um, you know, that can kind of make or break. That way you kind of know like you're running a, 
you're running a business like it's any other business um, and you're just being paid for the transfer of risk onto your books and then you having the ability to hedge that risk or lay that risk off or carry it to some extent and then um, applying some of those revenues to more concentrated positions or kind of leaning the the um, the firm's books in a way that is expressing more of a view and um, and then that kind of can make or break whether the firm will have an exceptional year or a, or a normal year. But um, it's definitely, a, you know, it's a departure coming, you know, coming from that world to um, watching, you know, what kind of happens in, in crypto where everybody is very, very dialed in on the front month or on spot price and um, very technically, you know, technically driven markets. Um, I mean, they need, you know, I guess they need something to hang their hat on, right? And um, well, when there's no fundamentals, how, uh, how are you going to determine your in- entries and exits? Are there more buyers than sellers is kind of what it comes down to at any given. Yeah. And so um, it, it, and look, it, it works. It's, you know, there's, there's more than enough people, including yourself, that have been incredibly, incredibly successful at it. And, you know, I definitely am seeing more and more of um, kind of where my background has been in proprietary trading come to the surface uh, in the crypto space. And you are seeing a lot more pairs and a lot more kind of duration trading, especially with the advent of things like, um, you know, like uh, futures and yeah, actually- TME, yeah. Yeah, futures curves and basis trading and, and other ways to trade relative, which ultimately over time is gonna, um, I, I think it's gonna more mirror, it's gonna create a volatility environment that more maybe mirrors what equity markets are where you're going to have these longer periods of, of kind of tamed volatility and then these jumps of like really intense volatility, and then it'll kind of go back into a consolidation mode again. Um, but, uh, you know, it, as that comes on and as you, you, you kind of have more touch points in the market uh, for market makers and for traders that are trading more rel- on a relative basis, um, it allows people to create more and more liquidity, tighter and tighter spreads. And that, you know, I kind of think that is the the evolution of creating a really deep market, which ultimately we're going to need um, to really bring much larger players of course. into the space. Yeah, that's how, what will bring the institutional money. So at, at the very uh, core, you really are looking to capitalize on inefficiencies to sort of find your edge. Um, so if you were doing that in those much more difficult markets, I mean, coming into crypto for you must have felt like you were like dunking a tennis ball on an eight foot basket while everybody else was like, you know, <laughs> shooting on a 20 foot basket, having that experience. I mean, what edge did you find you had in the market and what inefficiencies did you see where you could capitalize, you know, as a retail trader coming in? I mean, I, I think some of the the basic stuff that that a lot of firms are doing, you know, just more cross exchange and um it, you know the the fragmentation of 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 the price of Bitcoin just offered so much opportunity that you know that's definitely gotten more competitive now. But you know a, a few years ago that was was very available. I mean, and, at all time high. I remember literally price was nineteen k on some exchanges, sixteen on others, and and anywhere in between. Yeah, that was like um, in like that December of twenty seventeen. Yeah, there was that moment. I remember like Coinbase was. Uh, was 3,000 over basically the rest of the market. Maybe it's Coinbase or Bitfinex, one of them. Right. And then there was the Korean, you know, premium at times that 
for for months at a time in Korea, the price would be trading thousands of dollars over. So if obviously you had access to a Korean bank account in exchange, that was free money. It, exactly, exactly. And so you know, people in firms and that that you know whether it's a trader or whether it's firms that had the ability to do that, there's you know there's a lot to be capitalized on there. And um, you know, look, I I actually had experience. Um, and one of the things that really attracted me to to uh, to trading crypto was I, I remember opening up you know some of the exchanges in in 2013, 2014, 2015, and seeing the way that the order books were trading, and it reminded me so much of of trading internet stocks. Yeah. And when I traded internet stocks, I didn't trade relative value. I, I traded outright, just like everybody else. Yeah. And so. Um, a lot of the opportunity came um, there for me, so I did trade. I did continue to trade a lot of outright, um, and then the, you know, the other thing is really um, building into a core position. And if you can build yourself into a core, core position, you can end up basically gamma trading um, around your position. So basically trading long and short around your existing position. Yeah, to lower your cost basis. And- to lower your cost basis, add alpha. And um, it it's a much more comfortable way to trade um, if you have been able to accumulate, you know, a, a good position that that you're on sides with. If you're not on sides with it, it's equally as important to trade it to continue to lower your cost basis. Of well. course. <laughs> but um, but it, you know, being on sides with it definitely helps. <laughs> I mean, since you've been trading for over two decades, have you ever gone completely broke or made some epic mistake that maybe uh, people oh, yeah. could learn from? Yeah, I, um, I've had a couple of moments where, you know, I like to say that I ended up um, uh, laying on my couch with my thumb in my mouth. And, <laughs> um, and <laughs> uh, I think two specifically, one, when I first started trading and I, I just got off the trading floor, um, there was a... a a trading platform that was internal to the Chicago Board of Trade called Project A, and um, I had really just started trading, and I had, you know, kind of built an account up for myself, and um, I, I actually waited tables in college to, you know, to fund this account, so it was hard-earned money, and I ended up, um, I ended up putting a position on the way that that market traded was pro rata, meaning that the out the fill algorithm. If you were, if there was a thousand contracts on the bid, and you didn't have time priority, meaning that you weren't the first one to make that market, yeah, get in line. Um, you have, yeah, but it it allocated to you based on your size. So if a hundred lot came in and there was a thousand on the bid, and everybody was a hundred, you know, had a hundred lots sitting there, then it would allocate a 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. and um. So what you would do is you would load, people would really load up their bid side, like, you know, their, their markets to try to get a portion of an incoming order. Well, um, this was very, very, I mean, this is, we're talking about 21 years ago now. Um, so the advent of electronic trading as we know it today. And uh, somebody, a bank came in the market and sold a, I want to say they sold 15,000 um, 30-year treasury notes on a on a fat finger oh fun and yeah and and I, it was overnight and i was sitting there and i was kind of half asleep and um i ended up about three hundred thousand dollars off sides in a matter of like 15 seconds and um 
that was more than I had in my trading account. <laughs> yeah, nothing like a margin call to uh, wake you up in the middle of the night. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I traded my way out of it um, and basically got it back to a scratch um, within like 36 hours. And um, that actually, you know, that taught me a, a really good lesson. And really from there, I, I ended up becoming more of a, you know, I, I kind of looked at trading as like, I'd look at my friends who are, who were like going through medical school or becoming doctors and, or um, sorry, becoming lawyers and the hours that they were putting in. And I kind of started to look at trading and say, you know, if you really treat this as a business and um, you can grind out X amount of money every day on average, and obviously you're going to have your down days, um, like frame that relative to somebody who's working a hundred hours a week, um, trying to make their way up a law firm. And, you know, that, that guy is making four or $500 an hour. Um, it's a great living obviously. And so if you can kind of back into what your goals are and just how do I work my way up to, um, getting to those numbers, it, it's a great way to really build a base for yourself. And I, that's kind of the approach that I took trading ever since. And even when I got into the internet stocks, I, I really traded, like I traded Cisco more than I traded anything else. And the reason I did was that it, although it moved heavily, the, it was very thick. So there was a lot of bid, a lot of offer on the market and you can trade really good size. And so I, I really started scalping that in a way that, you know, everybody else wanted to be on high flyers. They wanted to trade, you know, pets.com that would go to $1,200 and then down to 300 in like a day. Right. And, um, you know, ever since I went through that first experience that, that was, um, you know, I, I kind of stayed away from those things and really approached it more as a grind. And then, um, you know, I got, I got dinged up pretty bad off of nine 11 as well. And, um, that was kind of a, a, another learning experience for me. And, and, you know, it took me, it took, definitely took me a few months to get back on my feet and, and to get my legs under me and really start, um, getting back to trading how I knew to trade. And, um, you know, ever since then, I've just really been able to kind of grind and, and for the most part, stay out of trouble. And, and, you know, I guess it's the same things that, you know, you probably tell your audience on a regular basis is there's just kind of these baseline things with trading, like ringing the cash register is so damn important. Yeah, take profit. Um, take profit. Even if like, I know I'm trading well, if I can't, if I'm constantly a little bit frustrated while I'm in the moment, because I'm getting out a little bit too early or I'm like even getting in maybe a little bit too late, but I'm getting enough meat off the bone that I'm more consistently profitable. And then as I build that up and I'm measuring the amount of risks that I'm taking, my position sizing is going up and up, um, which is then turning into better and better P&Ls. And, you know, and that kind of has worked well for me. And look at some other people have, you know, have risk tolerances that are way larger and some are way tighter. And it, it just kind of depends where you fall on the spectrum. But I can say that ringing the cash register is, um, is most important to me than, than anything when you're, you know, when you're really starting to trade more, um, more professional. Right. That's such an important point, though, because I think that especially in this market, a lot of people never really, you know, they, they feel like maybe they're taking profit to Bitcoin from an altcoin, but they're very, very hesitant to actually cash out the fiat because 
either they have their sort of, you know, preconceived notion that the dollar is going to die, which you hear in this whole market and that Bitcoin is the future, or just because, you know, they're afraid that they might miss the next Bitcoin move coming out because, you know, Bitcoin is sort of this intermediary currency between the two. But um, it's interesting that you learn the lesson. I mean, you can't live as a trader unless you can pay your bills with actual money. Right. Uh, and you have to remember that the, like, the, the market's on a continuum. It's always there, 24-7, 365. So, you, you know, you find the things that work for you. You take your opportunities. And then once in a while, you fall into things that you get a real, you end up with a really deep edge on or you timed it incredibly well, which is not, you know, is not always, um, it, it doesn't happen often. But when it happens, like you're, you know, you, that's where your, your base hit and your double turn into a triple or home run. Right. And that grand slam pays for, you know, 10 strikeouts. Pays for ten strikeouts and more, it, it, and more, and well, and then psychologically, it 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 really um, it works wonders for you know for how you're thinking about everything, and it just makes your whole life better as a whole. <laughs> yeah, I just want to go back and touch on something that you said. So you were trading, obviously, uh, that first bad experience was in the late '90s, but then you said you also got somewhat uh, destroyed at uh, at September 11th, um, yeah. 9/11. So. I mean, that's a 12-year gap, and there was still some huge mistake that you made. And I think that touches on no matter how long you're in this market or any market, there's always going to be those bad moments. I mean, uh, with as much as you learned, you still sort of had that. I also had a huge... I mean, I went effectively broke in 2012 on, an, on a single trade after all of my experience. So, I mean, how does that really happen? What can people learn from from that? I I think that, um, you know, for me, it was um, going from being a trader and what that really meant to be a, to being a trader professionally and being an investor. And um, I took a because I was having success as a trader, I think it it gave me a little more ego than I needed in terms of thinking that I was um not necessarily smarter than the market, but could look at things differently than how I looked at it to earn a living as a trader. All of a sudden, you were much more handsome and women were calling you. And... <laughs> exactly. All the things that never normally happen. happen. <laughs> and, and so, um, we, but we, uh, yeah, and, you know, I got on the wrong side of, of ultimately 9-11. And, um, and then, you know, what was even worse was that, and this kind of goes back to ringing the cash register, is that, after it, you know, the, the daily P&L that, that I was capable of earning, um, it no longer had as much meaning to it because all I can think about was what I had lost. Right. And that ultimately, you know, after a couple months, I, I backed away for a little bit. I mean, there's almost no worse uh, mentality for a trader than trying to recoup losses. Yeah. And, you know, and my partner and I, we talked like even through 2018 and watching, you know, watching um, Bitcoin trade lower and, and you know, shorts pounding it, it we, we just could see people going, you know, driving, literally driving their Lambo off the cliff. And, um, you know, that that money that was handed to people in 2017, um, it, it once, you know, in a couple cycles that you're ever going to get opportunities like that. And, um, you know, I, I think it probably turned a lot of people into a lot of people came out of it and continued to be amazing traders. There's no doubt. And I think some people 
kind of wrote it up, wrote it down and, you know, ended up in a worse, you know, probably wished that 2017 never happened. And some people took it and, you know, and kept living high on the hog during that period, you know, in 2018 and now are, you know, trying to figure out how to make their way forward again. And um, it's just the nature of a market. And when you have those kind of once in a, or a, maybe a couple in a lifetime opportunities, it's so important to, to understand what they are during that period. And to ring the cash register. And to ring the cash register as much as you can. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, I think that's, that those couple of things could carry people who want, who are in trading professionally, you know, or even retail guys that are doing it full time, a, a long, long way. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's important to mention something I've always believed, like if you have an investment or a trade or something and it becomes life-changing money, you should basically ignore the future and not worry about what's going to happen and just take your profit and run. Exactly. It's, it's, it's handing it to you. So, um, there's no need to be, you know, it's not a game of, uh, of hitting bullseyes over and over again. So, um, yeah, I mean, I wonder how many paper millionaires there were in Bitcoin in 2017. Yeah. There's no doubt an absurd amount. And, and probably many who, you know, didn't understand the responsibility of what that really meant. <laughs> and when you actually ring it and it ends up in your bank account, it has, it takes on a very different meaning. Um, but look, the, this market's amazing. And, you know, I mean, I saw a tweet you put out earlier basically saying what a great time to be alive. And I think that kind of, I think everybody that's still here feels that way. And um, I, I constantly think about how early we really are. And, you know, when in even like think about in 10, 15 years from now, it'll still kind of be early um, relative to what you're seeing in, you know, in legacy markets and, and, you know, kind of how technology has evolved. So I, I'm super excited for, for, you know, what's going on. And, and I love to see the innovation that's happening. And there's so many smart people, you know, intelligent people in the space. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of what, you know, we've built and kind of where we're going with our platform. And, you know, we, we definitely see it as being another touch point um, for traders, um, both experienced and new. Um, in the space, uh, and just being another touch point for people to, you know, to to trade their view on, you know, on these markets and other markets that we're going to present um, onto the platform uh, in the future. So, uh, being an entrepreneur in this market, it's a twenty four seven market. The the market obviously never closes. I mean, what is that like for you on a day to day basis? It's been pretty insane. There's no doubt. Um, you know, I. I definitely expected it, but you know, we're, it it definitely takes a toll in some parts of your life. And um, but you know, it's kind of you're, you're putting your work in now for you know, hopefully for a greater future for yourself. And um, my my day is really, you know, is is really spent. Um, I mean, I spent definitely spent a lot of time with our lawyers and accountants. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it's either it's going from that to working with the development team to marketing to product developments. And, um, it's, you know, we're just running a full scope business. Um, and it, it removes a lot of, you know, some of the element of, of kind of the, the crypto aspects of it, because underneath it, it really is a, it's a growing company. 
Right. So it's, you know, whatever is laying on top of it, um, it's, it's just a growing company in a very nascent new space. So, um, you know, it definitely comes with its challenges, you know, whether it's, um, you know, managing uh, the you know, financial side or um, making decisions on products and um, uh, or, you know, the regulatory side. We're, we, we've been, look, I, I ultimately feel we've been very fortunate. Um, you know, we recently brought on some incredible strategic investment partners and, um, you know, they've definitely um, provided a ton of value in terms of um, bolstering growth on a, on a forward-looking basis. And, um, you know, I, I enjoy it. I, I, I'm in love with what I do and um, I, I love our product and I love the space and, you know, and I'm here to support it for, you know, hopefully for the rest of my career. But what does like an average Sunday look like for you when, you know, everybody else is somewhere yeah. watching football or hanging out? I mean, same way it looks like on a Tuesday or Wednesday. That's pretty yeah. much it. But um, yeah, it, it really is, um, you know, spending a lot of time um, just interacting with my team. And, um, you know, obviously because it is global, uh, doing a lot of a lot of phone calls in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, we're, we have to constantly monitor the, the diagnostics and health of the platform. and um, you know, making sure that from a security standpoint, it's running on point and, um, and that the, you know, the platform is delivering an optimal experience for our user base. And so it, you know, like I said, the, the days kind of blend together and, um, the, the months go by super fast. Uh, and then, um, you know, the time that I'm not, um, working, which is not often, I'm, you know, probably more 80% present otherwise is, um, yeah, I, I try to do a couple of things for myself, whether it's, um, you know, going to do yoga or, or spending time with my family. Um, but you know, it, we're, we're really committed over the next few years to, to make this platform, you know, what we feel confident that it will be. And, um, you know, kind of, it, it, it may come at the price of some other things in our lives, but it, um, it really, you know, should offer a, a, um, a good end game uh, for, you know, for us for the future. So kind of what I'm hoping is that ultimately we, we continue to build it up and the seven day a week, I don't mind it because the, the work is, is ultimately enjoyable. And um, we, you know, we, we're hoping and we're confident that it's going to get to a point where the, the machine kind of starts to run itself and, and grows much bigger than, than me and Rob. And, um, and, you know, we're, we're definitely on the trajectory towards that happening. And at that point, you know, we can kind of change scope of, of how, uh, how we interact with it on a day-to-day basis. Are there any key pieces of advice that you would give to someone who wanted to be an entrepreneur in general or in this space? I mean, from your experience over the past few years? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would say that, you, you know, you, really focus on on your product and um and make sure that you're coming to market with something that you know that at least on a, on a test basis is um has got validation uh before you really start scaling scaling it um i think it it works out much better from a fiscal standpoint and um you know you, you constantly want to be testing out what the market you know feels about your product and making sure that you that you do have fit um, and I would try to do as much as you can with as little as you can, um, early on. And, 
you know, and, and really take your time uh, on, you know, procuring your, your brand and, and, and making sure that the messaging is right to, you know, to the rest of the world. And um, I think those are some basic things that you can do to really improve your chances of succeeding. But there are so many unknowns that, that cross your path along the way. And there's no doubt you'll have so many mo- oh shit moments. Um, but as you scale, although those increase, they, you know, the, the instances of that may increase, but they, they become less impactful to the overall health of the organization. Um, so you definitely have to get through that first couple years. Um, and I, you know, and I think there's just hire people that you like working with and that are, you know, really good at what they do and, and smart and set yourself up for success. And I think you, you know, it can definitely go a long way. Now, people don't know that you and I actually met randomly at a wedding and had no idea that we were uh, both into crypto. We were sitting across the table from each other and didn't actually find that out till years later. Um, our mutual friend told me to ask you um, if you got into crypto because you were influenced by games like Tuzbeer. <laughs> and I have no idea what that means. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Tuzbeer is a is a game that was played um, by, I think it's a Middle Eastern card game. He, he told me Chaldean, but I... Yeah, by uh, Iraqi. Uh, the Chaldeans are Iraqi uh, uh, Christians, I think. And um, our where where we grew up had a uh, you know a large Chaldean population. They love to play this card game um, nonstop, and so uh, yeah, our mutual friend and I, to this day, and it's been thirty years. Um, we literally every time we talk, that Tuz beer comes up, and it's uh, we get we get a big kick out of it. So. Yeah, he told me to basically just talk to you about Night at the Roxbury or like how to swear in Chaldean. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to say but, that uh, for uh, for offline, but uh, <laughs> perhaps. So uh, I know we only got a couple more minutes, but uh, we, we talked uh, recently, and you told me that you actually owned a piece of a indie record label when you were younger that your brother ran. Obviously, music is close to my heart, and that's a business I know probably even better than uh, trading in crypto. So could you just uh, give me a quick, the quick hits on that? Yeah, quick hits is, uh, you know, my my uh, brother founded a record label uh, in the early 2000s that I ended up um, being the investor behind. And uh, he, he was a uh, Remarkably talented at, at at spotting at spotting talent early, which for an indie label is is important, and um, that that ultimately turned into a uh, a distribution company, and um, you know they had some mild success, and uh, it it was at a time where, um, and you know this is just a, an ode to to the advancement of technology, um, you know I think our second or third year in is when Napster really started to pick up, yeah, so the the margins that a label could make on um, on things like CDs, which at the time, which was you know that's that was kind of the the, the primary medium, um, diminished, and so we we ended up getting out of the business. But uh, it, that was an amazing experience. Like that, you know, you'd have all his bands come through, you know, in Chicago and stay at my house, and um, you know they they got they had a couple of bands that were on. Um, their label that that ended up um, 
relatively pretty big. Um, you know, nobody that went to like uh, super kind of major stardom. But, you know, I, I think in, you'll you'll understand this is that there's so many musicians out there mm-hmm. you never even heard of that are, you know, making fortunes just on, you know, on their on the checks that they're receiving from, you know, a, a, a music producer for a movie, um, you know, found one of their tracks and put it in or a TV commercial. Like we have we have one. Um, we had one musician who ended up with like the main jingle for uh, a big regional bank in the South. Huge. Yeah. The guy was making, you know, a, a ridiculous amount of money every year off of it. And, you know, was, was living on ramen prior. And so um, that, that is a, I mean, I'd like to hear your, you know, kind of your crazy stories from that, but you want to talk about a grinding business. It makes um yeah, I mean, I have, a, I have a million of them, obviously, but I think it, it kind of touches on people don't realize that, you know, how many records you sell is somewhat irrelevant to your overall business model, which is why labels went to sort of the 360 deals with artists over the years, especially in the digital era, kind of what you touched on, where they get a piece of the merchandising, a piece of the touring, a piece of all those placements and stuff, because as a record label, just having a piece of record sales became, like you said, I mean, it was an obsolete business model. So like you said, if you place a song in a commercial or a movie, that's where you make your money. If you can be a touring artist and never even have anyone listen to your CDs, that's where you can make your money out there selling merch. I mean, I know artists who have never had a hit, never had a gold album who are making multiple seven figures a year because they've built a huge touring base and they can go out and get 10 grand a show and do that 180, 200 days a year, even though that's a brutal lifestyle. Brutal lifestyle. It's no doubt. And and, and you're right. I mean, that's it's the same thing that we saw is that you know, that these bands early on, I mean, they, they have to hit that road. And, you know, a lot of, when you're in that indie business, it's, um, you know, a, a filling up a, a bar or a small venue with three to 500 people is a, is a home run. It's a huge paycheck. If you're getting a big chunk of that ticket sales or all of it, because sometimes, you know, obviously a venue will give you basically the full door. If you take on all the risk with a bar guarantee or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the you know, at the end of the day, everybody sees the the upside of it. You don't really see the inner workings of it, and it, it kind of goes for every business that's out there. And it's it's a I mean, you can tell. You know, you probably can tell everybody better than anybody is it's a grind, just like being a plumber, just like being a lawyer, just like being a doctor. And if you have the gift and you're able to do that and deliver that to an audience and make it captive, then you know that's that's what you were put on this earth to do. Yeah. And I don't think people realize how difficult it is to show up every single day, play the same songs, have the same fake smile, have the same conversation with every promoter, shake hands with every single fan who wants to talk to you. But, you know, it's funny being in this space. Um, certainly you see it that that kind of carries over because, you know, whether it be on Twitter or in real life, I mean, the you know, the more you interact with individual people, the more opportunities tend to present themselves. You never know who that one person who you're kind of blowing off could have been in your life. Yeah, it, exactly. It, you know, it's one. Of, it's definitely one of the beauties of crypto. Is the uh, it, it's a blessing and a curse, I guess, is the accessibility to um, you know to kind of people that are um, either CEOs of companies or um, you know people like yourself that are you know well known in the space and um, it we really try to, you know, approach everybody equally and, and, um, 
and kind of put our best foot forward with everybody. And sometimes it, you know, it kicks you in the nuts pretty hard. And sometimes it, um, it works out incredibly well. So all comes with the risk, I guess. Yeah, I would say over a 30 year career doing the kind of things we've done, the kicks in the nuts have been, uh, have been plenty, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's a couple of good, uh, good runs though. And, um, and you can forget it all. Exactly. It makes it all, it makes it all worth it at the end of the day. So. Well, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. It was a great chat. And I think that uh, I definitely learned a lot and hopefully other people will. So uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you in the future and having you having you back and to seeing what Hero has for us uh, moving forward. I, I would love that, Scott. And uh, thank you very much. And um, looking forward to watching you grow. You've been incredibly impressive um, with what you're doing in, in the space. And um, you know, definitely can see that your user base uh, is really captivated by by the uh by you know what the uh the value that you're providing and um excited to see where this podcast goes appreciate it man thank you very much and uh we'll we'll play a game of tusbeer next time we see each other you're on man that's dope hey everyone thanks for listening new episodes go live every tuesday at 7 a.m eastern standard time links to our apple and spotify channels are in the show notes you can also follow me on twitter at scott melker to continue the conversation see you next week <laughs>